0: This February, the Nixon Library commemorates Black History Month. Please follow our updates on this very important topic at nixonfoundation.org and on our Twitter and Facebook pages. To talk about President Nixon's history with the African-American community and record on civil rights, on this edition of the podcast is Dr. Dean Kudlowski. Dr. Kitalowski is a professor of history at Salisbury University and the author of an influential book on the subject called Nixon Civil Rights, Politics, Principle, and Policy. Historian Douglas Brinkley calls Nixon Civil Rights a, very land, a truly landmark study. Uh, Dr. Kudlowski, welcome. Thank you. You write, um, you kind of begin your book by saying that Nixon's civil rights policies tried to accommodate a number of social forces that emerged in the 1960s. Uh, could, you, could you touch upon what these forces were?
1: Yes, there were many. I think what a lot of people remember with Nixon and civil rights in that period, and then afterwards, was something called white backlash. That there had been a lot of progress in civil rights legislation. You had a successful civil rights movement in the South that through the legislation passed under President Johnson had dismantled much of segregation, but not all of it. And that there was a sense with the, um, the subsequent rioting by, um, by some African-Americans in Northern cities that happened as the country really started to deal with long-term racial and economic issues, that civil rights had gone too far, that maybe it was time for some sort of adjustment, that more resistance was coming in, and um, that was one social force. The other I kind of alluded to, and that was the, uh, the, the civil rights movement that was you know, Senator L. Martin Luther King Jr. was liberal, integrationist, had black supporters and white supporters. And then, of course, you had um, an emerging movement of um, associated with, to some extent, black nationalism, black separatism, black power was a phrase, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, and to some extent, but not completely. Um, his mantle was taken up by people like Stokely Carmichael who had their roots in the um, in the uh, um, in the uh, in the Southern uh, integrationist movement, moving again in a more different direction, um, a little more willing to use violence for self-defense rather than just nonviolence things along those lines. And then if we were just to move beyond African-American rights, we start to see emerging movements for women's rights, um, gay lesbian rights, um, Native American rights, where Nixon was very, very responsive. So there was this sense of rights consciousness that developed in the 60s, and in many ways for the other groups that I mentioned sort of peaked in the early 70s when Nixon was president. So that's that's where he is coming as president, and of course, he is not part of any of these movements that I've discussed. I mean, they are all kind of grassroots movements. He is part of a political establishment that is always going to be trying to accommodate these movements, and maybe even be, not maybe, but definitely, be somewhat uncomfortable with them.
0: Right. I was going to ask you how how does Nixon, you know, he, he gets elected to Congress in forty six, and he's there he's there in the thick of things, you know, through the nineteen fifties as vice president. Um, how does his uh, how does his views on civil rights evolve over this period of time?
1: Well, early on, when you look at civil rights legislation, whatever his private views on African-Americans or race or any of the groups that I I mentioned, and when we think about the 40s and 50s and early to mid-60s, when we think of civil rights, we're really thinking about African-American rights. Uh, It it was very good. You know, the Republican Party still had a, a strong strain in it. Going back to Abraham Lincoln, it had a number of liberal and moderate Republicans from the north. I would include California in the north, even though it's the west, because it's not the south. So we can put him in that sort of context. And, you know, in 1952, um, I'm here in Salisbury, Maryland. There was a lynching in Salisbury. Uh, There were a couple in the area, in fact, in the 30s. As a vice presidential candidate, he came to Salisbury, and he said, I know I've been told not to address the race question. He never mentioned lynching directly. He mentioned, as I just said, indirectly. And he said, but I'm not going to speak in, in one section of the country fundamentally differently than another section of the country. I, I believe in, uh, in non-discrimination. So the record as vice president was pretty good. He co-chaired a committee um, designed to, to root out discrimination in government contracts under President Eisenhower. It wasn't a terribly strong committee. I don't think an awful lot of progress was made, but he was there for that. And I think you can see the origins of his job-oriented civil rights program as president in the vice presidency. And then he supported voting rights. I think that that's something that is part of a kind of consensus. Even Southern segregationists had trouble on the issue of voting rights, defending or, or attacking the right to vote. Um, although they did to a certain extent, but the 1950, what became the 1957 Civil Rights Act, was something that was an Eisenhower-Nixon administration initiative, weakened, of course, by Democrats in Congress. And it's very interesting, you know, you'll see Nixon as president trying to accommodate white Southerners. That's that's clear. There's no question about that. Okay, especially in terms of his rhetoric and so on. But it's also important to remember that both political parties were more or less doing that. The Democrats had the Southern Democrats, uh, the conservative white Southerners in their party. And in the, in the 50s, you see Lyndon Johnson as majority leader, again, walking that kind of thin line. So the question is, again, uh, a very divided country and how you deal with civil rights is, is difficult. I don't think, Jonathan, any president... Uh, in the, in the 20th century, for, with, with a few exceptions in of a few moments, could really get a lot of symbolic uh, mileage out of certain gestures. I mean, there were a few examples with Truman, the Johnson speech before Congress, um, the gestures in favor of civil rights. Uh, it, it was an issue that was demanding action, K- action now.
0: Case in point, the 1960 election, Nixon loses by a razor-thin margin Wins one third of the African American vote to JFK's two thirds. Uh, how did the two differ on uh, civil rights, and how did that how did that issue play out in, in, the, in that election?
1: Well, Nixon had the better record. I mean, he was very responsive on the issue of of employment and voting rights. As I mentioned, um, Kennedy was part of a political party that had begun in the mid nineteen sixties. Uh, excuse me, the mid-1930s, to successfully woo African-American votes through the New Deal, through its economic programs, the promise of non-discrimination, some examples of some gestures um, by Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. But the African-American vote was still very much up for grabs. And today, in let's say 2016 or 2017, if a Republican national candidate were to win one-third of the African-American vote, I mean, that's headline-making news. So the fact that Nixon got so many African American votes in such a high percentage is, is is definitely worth noting, and it, it is reflective of his record. Um, he might have gotten even more. I think he he would have gotten more. I don't know if he'd gotten a majority, but of course Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in a sit-in uh, later in the campaign. Uh, Bobby Kennedy called um, a judge to get him released, but mainly John F. Kennedy called Coretta. Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, and that display of sympathy um, helped. So I guess the gestures, um, you know, do help. Um, I think there was somewhat of an advantage that the Democrats had with African American voters, and in this case, a gesture like that helped to solidify African American support and allowed Kennedy to win enough northern states while he's still holding enough Southern states with Lyndon Johnson to win the election. So he pursued a kind of walking of the line strategy that managed to win enough from both potentially hostile or competing groups to eke out a very, very narrow victory.
0: Uh, Eight years later in the 1968 election, um, during that whole election cycle, Martin Luther King uh, gets assassinated. So does um, Robert F. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Um, it's a time of um, great national tension, including racial tension. How, how does how does Nixon fare with um, on the on the civil rights issue, especially with blacks during the nineteen sixty eight election?
1: Well, that with that election, you can just see eight years how the country had changed. I mean, there had been enormous progress with the legislation. There still wasn't as much economic progress, and you saw the frustration with it. So, at that point, a kind of symbolic gesture of equality, those things were routine and expected. So, Nixon, you know, doing something sort of dramatic like Kennedy did, um, it wasn't necessarily going to please a lot of African Americans who could further reiterate wanted real action in the area of civil rights. They wanted the words, they wanted the reassurances. So what Nixon did was he he did certainly look to the South, and you see that Strom Thurmond supported him at the convention. He certainly wanted the suburbs where a lot of white people lived, and and that really became his base. But he didn't completely write off the African-American vote. He knew he needed to have a positive civil rights agenda. He waffled a little bit maybe on school desegregation in some of his public statements favoring what were called freedom of choice plans that were widely seen as a subterfuge for keeping segregation or not dealing with it very strongly. This is with respect to schools where no president had been particularly strong. What Nixon did, though, in the election of 1968 is he put forward and advocated minority economic development through what he called black capitalism. It was a famous speech that he gave around April of 1968 called Bridges to Human Dignity. In fact, I believe it was a couple of addresses, you know, two parts um, in which he offered African-Americans a piece of the action. Uh, In in other words, his administration would promote um, African-American ownership of homes, businesses, uh, other sorts of enterprises, in a way it was in keeping with some of the spirit and some of the rhetoric coming out of, quote-unquote, black power. And it was enormously responsive. It, was, it, it confounded liberals who basically said, well, this isn't the solution. It turned out to be something of a solution. Nelson Rockefeller and Hubert Humphrey, respectively Nixon's, Republican rival for the nomination and then of course his main opponent in the fall campaign are going to more or less endorse these ideas But something that he put forward and he did follow through on it to a good extent as president
0: and were there tangible results to to black capitalism?
1: Well, um, when he was president as any new program that it had its ups and downs at the beginning um, they created something called the Office of Minority Business Enterprise in the Department of Commerce. And I think the most tangible thing that happened is the development of what, what we sometimes call minority set-asides, that a certain volume of federal contracts would be set aside for minority-owned businesses. And later under President Carter, it would include women's businesses, women-owned businesses. So I think that that's important. And you know, easily, Maurice- Hens, who was the Commerce Secretary, defended the program. He said, "We've always favored tried to favor in our government contracts small business over big business. Why? Because as Americans, we like to think of ourselves as supporting small businesses. Uh, you know, the mom and pop shops. That's sort of the image. And what Stan simply said is, "Is this now gives you know minority groups, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, even Native Americans the right to have some of the access to these
0: contracts. You write that contrary to conventional wisdom, expediency didn't always govern Nixon's domestic policies. He would follow the recommendations of conservative advisors on which voting blocks, on, which, on which voting blocks to court, but then entrusted policy formation to his more moderate lieutenants. Uh, how did this, how did this action, this philosophy kind of play out on civil rights?
1: Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question. It, it really, really is. Because it's not like Nixon one day just simply decided I'm going to, to talk like a conservative and act like a liberal. But that's where his instincts were, and that's how he really organized the White House. So you see a lot of moderate to liberal advisors like John Ehrlichman, Len Garment, who he was very close to and dealt with civil rights issues, and... Um, His deputy Bradley Patterson very active in American Indian rights, and then of course you had people like Pat Buchanan, who was uh, uh, back then a hardcore conservative, and you know was willing to uh, you know uh, maybe emphasize a little bit of the Southern strategy, but voting uh, blocks that would later become important components of the of the Nixon coalition. So what what you would see here is what somebody called once a, a whispered "We shall overcome." They were going to downplay, the Nixon people would downplay a lot of the progress and things they were doing. So they wouldn't unnerve or unrattle the white Southerners who they were bringing into the party and encouraging to vote Republican. Uh, I think that that's true. There were some examples of Nixon showing a little bit of moral leadership. Uh, This kind of relative silence, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan called it benign neglect, whatever, uh... It did unnerve some of the civil rights organizations. While that was going on, though, Nixon was very responsive to what was going on in Congress and the courts and civil rights, and he wanted to strike out on his own. So just really briefly, it's the Nixon administration that really does, in response to uh, a Supreme Court decision, to desegregate the Southern schools, and that happens.
0: Right. Um. Desegregation being okay. one of the biggest, probably the biggest civil rights issue uh, that uh, Nixon faces when he comes into office. Um, what was what was Nixon's policy on desegregation?
1: Well, he, he it, it certainly was a big it was a big issue, and it uh, it had not been addressed by previous presidents uh, in, in in a big way. It was not a pleasant topic. For national leaders because they knew it was going to offend white Southerners, and um, in terms of what Nixon wanted to do, he stressed that he had a moderate approach. He was against segregation forever, as he put it, and he was against um, instant integration. And what his moderate approach was, was we're going to remove and end gradually, but in response to, again, in response to court orders, formal legal segregation, efforts that had pulled blacks and whites apart and put them in separate schools, as you saw through much of the South. He would not take the next logical step, if you want to call it um, the next logical step, and try to bring blacks and whites together um, where they didn't live together through busing. So he was against that. And that was the moderate stance. When the court orders in 1969 the immediate desegregation of the dual school system, the black and the white school system in the South. Uh, Nixon in 1970 prepares for this. He he leads to some extent behind the scenes in meetings. He forms committees in his administration and White House form committees in each of the Southern states, committees composed of prominent African-Americans and white Americans. And they did what one aide called the, the, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove treatment. So they would treat the South sensitively. A lot of the rhetoric was for the South. We don't want to make this difficult for the South. We want to do this in a way where we show dignity for white Southerners. So all the rhetoric was for the white Southerners. That does unnerve liberals and civil rights advocates. But the actual policy was to desegregate. It wasn't anymore if it would happen, and it wasn't even more when it would happen; it was how it was going to happen in that fall of 1970, and it did happen.
0: And what were the what were the results? Was the South completely desegregated by 1970?
1: Well, um, I, I think that there are numbers that are something like this: in 1968, 68 percent of African Americans in the South, defined, I think, as the old Confederacy, the former so-called Confederate state. 68% of African Americans in the South attended all black schools. By 1972, that number was down to 8%. Now, the brother of the slain civil rights leader, Medgar Evers, named the, I'm talking about a man named Charles Evers, said, man, I got to hand it to that Nixon. He's really back down. He was speaking of Mississippi. He said, there's not a black who's not in a, uh, in a, in a school here. So you have the numbers, you have the anecdotes. Um, I think you're going to see in subsequent years some resegregation as people moved around and so on and so forth. But um, the numbers were very impressive. And whenever Nixon was criticized by African-American civil rights organizations, they had a fact sheet ready to go. And he said, we will talk about our minority business program and our desegregation of southern schools and some of the other things like the Philadelphia Plan.
0: Could you touch upon the Philadelphia Plan a little bit? It, um, it was kind of a, it addressed affirmative action, discrimination in the workplace. He introduces this in 1969,
1: if I'm correct. As Fortune magazine put it, At the time of Nixon's death in 1994, incredible but true, it was the Nixonites who gave us employment quotas. Now, they weren't exactly quotas. Nixon couldn't call them quotas, and he didn't think of them as quotas. What the Philadelphia Plan did was to provide hiring targets, numerical hiring targets, goals, and timetables that contractors, people um, who held federal contracts, would have to meet in the six counties of southeastern Pennsylvania. So in order to have a federal contract, if you were in southeastern Pennsylvania, if you were a union, a business company, whatever, uh, you would have to show good faith efforts, quote unquote, um, toward meeting these ranges, these numerical ranges of hiring minorities. And with this, we really see the beginning of a more hard approach to employment, non-discrimination, and indeed affirmative action. So this idea is going to take root to some extent in the federal civil service, in other aspects of uh, employment policy, executive orders with the federal government, and it's even going to be expanded to include women. So he... As, as, as one of his aides, Bobby Green Kilbert, put it in a documentary, he was the first president to really put the bite or the teeth in affirmative action. Philadelphia Plan had been something the Johnson administration had tinkered with. They kind of developed the idea, and then they sort of dropped it, and it was picked up in 1969 by Secretary of Labor George Shultz, one of his deputies, Arthur Fletcher, and this was a way, again, for, among, for many other reasons, for Nixon to have a positive civil rights program that helped African Americans get into jobs. He wanted um, integration to occur in the workplace. He felt that that was one of the least sensitive areas. If you tried to force children together in schools through busing or if you tried to build uh, low-income housing in a suburb, He thought there would be too much resistance to that. This was more gradual. You give members of minority groups and you also give women opportunities to get higher paying jobs, they will have the means then ultimately to move and live wherever they want.
0: Last question. Um, Earlier we talked about the paradox of politics and policy. In sum, did, did Nixon's civil rights positions pay off policy-wise as well as politically?
1: Well, you have to think about for whom. Uh, I, I, I think for Nixon, if you look at his presidency, they probably did because he got reelected. And when he was reelected in 1972, he got about 20% of the African-American vote, uh, which was considerably lower than what he had received in 1960. But it's it's significantly higher than I think any Republican has gotten since then. So he got reelected. He he eased the white Southerners into the Republican Party, made a kind of new American majority, as he called it, Uh, white Southerners and uh, and suburbanites, largely white, some minorities. Some very prominent African-American celebrities came out and endorsed him in 1972 like the singer James Brown, very iconic figure, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., the football player Jim Brown, et cetera, and so forth. So I think it worked for him. I think in terms of his legacy, it's something that's still of a mixed bag because people remember those years as being very divisive. They remember Nixon's promise to, quote, unquote, bring us together. Hard thing to do. But they think maybe he should have reached out more to the African-American community in a more public, rhetorical presidency type mode. But at the same time, revisionist historians who look at the policy see an awful lot of progress. And my book isn't the only one that stresses that. It's, 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 It's the one that really zeroed in on civil rights. But I think there are a number of other historians, again in the academy, who really do concede and give Nixon a good deal of credit for things like school desegregation, um, signing a revised and expanded Voting Rights Act, um, the minority business effort, and of course the Philadelphia Plan, the last thing that we talked about.
0: Dean Kulowski, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you.